Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak and I am a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show for you to help you understand your money better. We look at the stock market and the reasons that it goes up and down. We look at financial legislation that can impact your bottom line. In the Plan Your Prosperity segment, we take a deeper dive into a financial planning topic to help you understand the details. And finally, in the Ask Peggy segment, that's your opportunity to ask me a question. So if you would like to submit a question to the show, go to the website askpeggy.com, that's A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y.com, and submit your question. Maybe you'll hear it answered on the show. So let's get started today with the Bulls and Bears Market and Economic Update. And I'm looking at the market data that ended the week of August 14th. And it was another good week for the stock market. The Dow was particularly good. It went up 1.81%. The S&P 500 went up a little over six-tenths of a percent. The NASDAQ that has been on such a tear had the smallest gain for the week at 0.08. Gold, unsurprisingly, went down about 4.5%. West Texas Intermediate Crude on the front month price is up about 1.5%. The 10-year Treasury yield went up. It went up 17.22%, which sounds like a lot, and it is as a percent, It's not as an absolute dollar amount. Remember how low interest rates have become. As a result, the aggregate bond fund, exchange-traded fund, remember, that's an index fund that tracks an aggregate bond index. It went down about 1%, which makes sense since the yield went up so much. And then finally, the dollar index went down about 0.2%. Three six percent. We've started tracking the dollar ever since some concern a few weeks ago about what the dollar was doing, and I just thought it was an interesting index to add to what we were talking about. So I want to talk a little bit about the stock market this morning, and I want to talk about behavioral finance and the way people behave sometimes in ways that aren't necessarily dictated by fact. And this is specifically based off of a very interesting white paper that I read this week by a man named James Montier. Now, whenever I cite someone, I always like to look at them in quite a bit of detail, especially if they work in the industry and they're not just an academic. But Mr. Montier has a very impressive resume. He is part of GMO's asset allocation team. Now, GMO is a major portfolio management firm. And when I say it's major, the headquarters are in Boston, but it also has offices in Amsterdam, London, San Francisco, Singapore, Sydney, and Tokyo. So it's not just a little organization. Ahead of that, he worked 
for Societe Generale, which is a huge French investment firm. So he does not appear to have an agenda, and he wrote this really interesting white paper that I wanted to talk about some of the findings and what I think it means for you. Now, let's start out by letting you know that Mr. Montier is a behavioral finance person. A behavioral finance um, follower is someone who does not always assume that investors are behaving rationally. When you study modern portfolio theory, and that's the standard textbook, how does the stock market work theory, it's called MPT or modern portfolio theory. It has a series of assumptions that it makes. Possibly one of the most major assumptions is the rational investor. And it says that an investor will choose an investment that gives him the most return for the least amount of risk, and he will behave in a rational way. And the um, modern portfolio theory says this is how markets are supposed to work. Now, behavioral finance does not argue that um, the stock market is a roulette wheel where you never know what you're going to get next. But it does say that that assumption that investors are rational is not accurate and that people invest for lots of different reasons and they don't always make the most efficient decision and sometimes they take too much risk and sometimes they act in ways that aren't in their best interest. And so as a result, it is the investor behavior that explains stock market bubbles. When you talk to a modern portfolio theory follower and you ask them about stock market bubbles, they'll say, well, those are anomalies to our theory, which would be really great if they weren't such awful anomalies. You know, it's fine to have some noise to the edges, but when that noise is really important noise, it becomes pretty problematic. Now, Mr. Montier believes that the stock market right now is completely ignoring risk and that it is going up based off of a series of assumptions that it's making about how all of the economic fallout from the coronavirus impacts is going to go. And he admits that prior to the coronavirus outbreak, he was very bullish on the stock market. So at the beginning of 2020, he thought things were going to go well. But he thinks that the assumption of a V-shaped recovery the assumption that everything is going to get absolutely back to normal, the assumption that if there's another wave of the, out, of the virus that breaks out, it won't impact the market. He just believes that those are all risks that the market is completely ignoring. They're not trying to figure out how to price it in. They're just pretending that it doesn't exist. And his biggest issue with this is when he compares, and I'm going to get a little wonky on you here for just a minute, but I'm going to um, I, I'm going to explain all of the words. When you look at the um, Schiller P.E. percentile, okay, so now P.E. is price to earnings, and Schiller has been following price to earnings for a long time. So right now, what you find is that we are at the 95th percentile of price to earnings. Price, price of the stock. Earnings, the amount of money that the company is bringing in. 
the higher the price to earnings, the more expensive the stock is for what it's bringing in. Right now, the market is priced at a 95% price to earnings ratio, very, very high, abnormally high. So this is an expensive stock market. Simultaneous to this, economic growth measured in real GDP, gross domestic product, is at the fourth percentile. So we have a GDP that's very low. So 100% would be where you would want that to be. So when you're at four, you're at the bad end of GDP growth. When you are at a 95, you're on a very high end of stock market price. Mr. Um, Montier believes that the market is not accounting for this and says that we've got to be careful and he doesn't know how this is going to end and he doesn't know that the market is wrong. He just believes that the market isn't looking at the risk and it isn't pricing in the risk. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this for a couple of reasons and I'll be the first to say, I don't know either. I do know that over the weekend I was listening to the news and they said a third of the restaurants in New York City are never going to come back and that all across the United States, all across the United States, huge swaths of industries just aren't going to come back. And I can't believe that all of this is going to occur in a complete vacuum. So I want you to pay attention to the detail. I also want you to be very careful with your risk tolerance level. I know we talk about this a lot, but what happens with risk tolerance, which is why it's such a difficult thing to measure, is when the market is doing well, like it is right now, everybody thinks they've got a great risk tolerance. Oh, no, I can handle this. Not a problem. And then something starts going south. And maybe it's not the coronavirus in the fall. Maybe it's something that happens next year. Maybe it's unrelated. Maybe the market gets upset with who wins in November. It could be anything, but suddenly the market starts going down. And when the market goes down, when you have been a little too exuberant in what you thought your risk tolerance level was, you begin to lose your mind and you're very likely to sell out at exactly the wrong time. Now, I have no issue with making adjustments to your portfolio. Okay, I don't go into that. I'm not passive. I don't advocate passive. I don't advocate active. This is not a radio show and telling you how to make money in the market. It is trying to tell you that you've got to behave in a way that you don't just shoot yourself in the foot. So you don't want to buy when it's high and sell when it's low over and over and over. When you get on the wrong side of your risk tolerance, you tend to do that. You tend to make that mistake, and that's a mistake I really don't want you to make. I also want you to be careful with who you're listening to. The more everyone around you says, oh, the market is going to go up forever, the more likely it is that this is a bubble. I want you to be careful. I'm not saying it's a bubble. I'm saying it's strange. And I want you to work with your certified financial planner practitioner, work with your risk tolerance, look at your financial goals, and make portfolio decisions that make sense for your long-term financial health. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. 
And today I want to talk about some additional questions that the SEC has added to their information about regulation best interest, also known as Reg BI. Remember, the SEC is the Securities and Exchange Commission, and this is the legislation that they passed last summer to impact the kind of relationship that financial professionals have with their clients. If you want more details about this, you'll want to listen to an earlier episode of the podcast, which you can find on iTunes at Ask Peggy Doviak About Your Finances. But today, I just want to address a couple of the frequently asked questions that they've added because I think this is really important for you guys. So the first has to do with disclosure when someone has had a brokerage account So they've worked with a broker who's charged commission, and now they're wanting to work with a financial advisor who is charging probably an assets under management fee. It's very important if you're looking at working with a new financial professional to find out how they're paid. Okay, everybody gets paid. So when people have been with a broker, they've already paid the commission. If they transfer to the financial advisor and the asset-based fee, they could be paying fees on top of fees that they paid before when they purchased the product. Now, that's not necessarily a bad decision to make. It is incumbent on the advisor, however, to disclose these fees with you. In fact, when you go back to the original Department of Labor fiduciary rule that I loved so much, part of that said that when you're moving an account from one financial advisor or from a 401k or another form of retirement account to working with you, that you have to disclose what the old fees were to the best of your ability and what the new fees are so that the client can make a fee comparison. And people will argue, well, you know, some advisors are worth more worth their fees than others, and that probably is a true statement. However, at the end of the day, you as the consumer always have the right to know what you're paying for a service. So if you had mutual funds that were purchased for you by a broker, and let's say that broker got a 5% commission, and they bought it a couple of years ago, then you paid them the 5% commission up front probably, and they may get a little bit of a trail through something called a 12B1 fee that's part of the fund that gives them a little income every year. You see it because your expense ratio on the fund is a little bit higher. But the transaction for the most part is paid for. If you now move to a financial advisor who charges a fee, and let's assume that advisor charges 1%, then you paid the 5% two years ago, now you're paying 1%. It's a perfectly reasonable question to ask the new person, why should I do this? And what services am I going to get from you? What am I going to get as to, to be worth the 1% you're charging me? And it's also perfectly reasonable to look at the expenses of the funds that you currently own and compare it to the funds that the new advisor is recommending. 
sometimes the difference in the fund fees will almost pay for that advisor's 1%. It doesn't always happen, but sometimes it does. And it's up to the financial advisor who wants your account to make the fees really clear, and that's what the SEC said. Additionally, there's now some real issue around using the word advisor, where if you're calling yourself an advisor, you have to give financial advice, not just be a broker. And apparently, according to the frequently asked questions, it's now okay that if you're working with a firm and the firm has people in it who give financial advice for the firm to call itself financial advisors. The person working with you might be a broker and not able to use the word financial advisor because they're actually just brokering trades, not providing advice. I know that sounds like a real train wreck to get your brain around, so here's what you do. You ask the person you're working with what role they have and what standard of care are they going to hold to and what does that mean? Because I think if we actually make people define what acting in best interest is to you, that's going to go a long way to keep the terms from just being words that people throw around. So be really careful with this. Be absolutely sure just because a firm says they're advisors doesn't mean the person in the firm necessarily is. So it's up to the consumer to be careful. Then finally, because this is the legislative update and, and I love all things legislative and all things political, I would like to invite you to watch both political party conventions that are on this week and next week and listen to what they believe in, and listen to what they stand for, and then I do not care who you vote for, okay? I just simply want you to vote. Do you know that in 2016, only 55.7% of the people who are eligible to vote in this country did, which means roughly 45% didn't. Do not be part of the 45%. The biggest way that you can impact your legislation, your financial legislation, any legislation, is to vote. So listen to the parties, listen to what they believe in, and then go vote in November or request an absentee ballot really early, then return it the day you get it so that it gets through the system all right, and then your voice becomes part of the narrative, and it's really important that your voice be heard. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome to the Plan Your Prosperity segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today I want to talk about what to do with your money now that the summer is over. Now, granted, the summer of 2020 is going to be one for the history books. Most of us didn't take a vacation this summer. But even with the weird social distancing, wearing a mask, washing your hands, ordering takeout world that now has become our norm, summer tends to move a little more slowly. And now with back to school, whether that's in person or virtual, everything's going to begin to pick up speed. And more than that, it's time to get back to work. It seems like in the summer, nobody wants to talk about their money because it's the summer. Now it's the fall. It's a really good time to do a financial assessment if you haven't done one in a while. And I'd really like to encourage you to do it now because I don't know what the holidays are going to look like this fall, 
but I know they'll be busier than we are right now. So while you have a lull between summer vacation and the holidays, it's a really great time to do a financial assessment. You know, we work 40 hours a week to earn our paycheck. I'm always surprised at how people don't want to spend just one or two hours a month making sure everything's on track. But if you'll spend the time, you'll get some great rewards for it. First, we talked about behavioral finance in the last section. I believe that one reason why people don't like to look at their finances is because they're afraid of them. You're afraid that you aren't really earning enough money to be okay. You're afraid you're not saving enough for retirement. And so it's really human nature to deal with that by not dealing with it, right? We, we tend to avoid those things that frighten us. So I want you to take an honest look, even if it scares you. Realize that the earlier you discover you aren't saving enough for retirement, the more options you have to fix it. You don't want to get to the age of 65 and discover that there isn't enough money and so now your only option is working longer. Now, mind you, I tend to think that one of the easiest ways of solving an underfunded retirement is to continue working because most people have the ability to do it and it's a really great way to add more retirement savings, lower your retirement need because every year you work, you're not dipping in. But you don't want that to be your only choice at 65. So even if you're afraid of it, look at it. Then break big tasks into small pieces. So if you need to pay off debt, don't look at the whole amount that you need to pay off. Look at how much you could pay off each month and break that into bite-sized amounts and pay down the debt and pay down the debt and pay down the debt and eventually it's paid off. The same thing with saving money. Maybe you haven't really started saving for retirement yet and that's why you don't want to look at it. Okay, so start now and just start. Maybe it's not as much money as you wish you could put back, but put back what you can and do it over and over and over again. And before you know it, you'll be in much better financial shape than you are today and you'll be much closer to the goals that you have. Remember that your financial world has different pieces and it's important to look at all of them. So you want to look at your cash flow, how what your budgeting is, how you save money, how you get out of debt. You want to look at whether or not you have enough insurance. That can be life insurance or disability insurance. Maybe it's property insurance for your house or your vehicle. Just do an insurance review and make sure that whatever that insurance is supposed to cover would handle the situation if something went terribly wrong. You want to look at your retirement savings and you want to make sure whether or not your company has a plan and do they match. You want to look at that risk tolerance that we've talked about the last few weeks and in the first section of today's show. Is your risk tolerance level for your investments correct? Then is your portfolio matching your risk tolerance level? Because if it is, that's great. But if it isn't, you may need to make some adjustments. What's going on in the tax code? Right now, the tax code is a moving target. And there's been changes, just huge changes, almost one a year and more often than a year. So you really need to know what the laws are, what you can do, and what you can't do 
and how things have adjusted. And then finally, you've got to make sure your estate plan is in place. You need to make sure that you have all of the documents so that what you own goes to the people that you want to get it and maybe not the people you don't want to get it. You need to make sure that you have powers of attorney in case you're incapacitated. You need to decide what you want the end of your life to look at, to look like. On top of that, there's education funding and all sorts of different kinds of financial things. So make a list of what you need to review and then address each of those situations separately, again in little pieces so you don't get overwhelmed. And you might want to talk to a certified financial planner practitioner, a CFP pro, because they're really good with financial planning issues and they can help you create a financial picture of your entire financial life. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today's question is really important. The question is, Peggy, how important is it for me to have a banking relationship? And it is incredibly important to have a relationship with a bank. I want to back up a step and I want to talk about the importance of having a bank account at all. There are some people who function without having bank accounts and they use check cashing services to cash their paychecks. They use money orders to pay bills if they can't use cash. The problem with this is it's a very expensive way of doing business. It's much better to go and open a checking or a savings account at the bank. That way you have a way to get cash without having to pay a check cashing service. You have a way of holding your money at an institution rather than having so much cash on you where you run the risk of being robbed. You might have the ability to earn a little interest, although right now interest rates are terrible, that wouldn't be your primary reason for having an account. You also can write checks to pay bills, which are cheaper than money orders. If you want to do things a little bit more currently than writing checks, you can use a bank account to open a Venmo account or some other form of money transferring service. So if you currently don't have a bank, even if you're young, I would like to encourage you to become banked because it's a great step towards financial stability. If you have a business, it's really important to become banked because often there are services that a bank can offer a business that are very useful financially. I think it really hit home with me this summer when I realized how many small businesses don't have banking relationships. When the PPP, the Payroll Protection Program, was put out by Congress, many small businesses weren't able to access the money. And they weren't able to access the money because banks have know your customer rules. And technically, PPP was a loan that was forgiven if you followed all of the rules around it. So people would go to their bank or to a bank that they weren't doing business with, try to apply for the PPP, and they wouldn't get it and they didn't understand why. 
The reason they didn't get it was the bank couldn't pass the Know Your Customer rules. The banks actually asked for this to be waived. It wasn't waived and it caused a huge issue. So here's what I would like to have you do. If you don't have a bank account, open one. If you do have a bank account, I want you to spend some time actually physically going into the bank and getting to know the people in the lobby. I know we all want to drive through, we all want to use the ATM, we want to all use e-bill pay, but the problem is no one gets to know you well that way. If you'll go into the bank, you don't have to have a huge account, but you become more known. It becomes easier to qualify for something like this. And then if something like the PPP were to happen again, only go to a bank where you have a relationship because they have to know you. I can't believe how fast this week has gone again. We're nearly out of time. I will see you next time. Bye. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.